Hi everyone, welcome to the Cranog. This is our more panel-based side of the podcast, um, where we all kind of bring different folktales along one theme. This week's theme is uh, folklore and art. So um, obviously that doesn't translate very well to podcasts, so you can keep an eye on our social media for all of the um, artworks and things that we talk about this podcast. So uh, we've got me, I'm Rebecca. I'm David. And I'm Mila. And on with the show. Okay, so I'm going to talk a bit about Pictish silver jewellery and uh, their kind of vessels and things made through the silversmiths. Um... As a silversmith in my spare time, I found it a particularly interesting area. So instead of how the Picts depict myths and legends through their jewellery, I'm going to start and talk about how Pictish jewellery and silver items play a role in dispelling some of the myths about Pictish people. Many Roman scholars at the time referenced the naked, blue, tattooed barbarians of Northern Britain, or as we know them now, the Picts. Um, believed to be work from the word picti, which can be translated to mean painted people, although some Welsh scholars have disputed this recently, saying it could also be seen to mean growers of wheat in Welsh. The barbarian warlike painted people is what the myth has passed down to us as how the picks were. However, was this in fact the case? To tackle the first point of these descriptors, the naked one, some of the most famous pieces of Pictish jewellery are penannular brooches. You can see already the problem with this if they were naked. Um, While such brooches would only really have been worn by the elite in Pictish world, there are several other sources of evidence that the typical Pict wasn't naked. They have been fragments of clothing along, along with a complete cowl found. On top of this, looking into the art world again and the Pictish stones, the Picts are depicted clothed typically for men in long tunics cinched in at the waist or in times in kind of like kilt-like almost garb. Um, And for women, the most common depiction is in ankle-length dresses. This all makes sense given the cold Scottish climate. If they're all running about naked in the middle of winter, I think they'd all get hypothermia. (laughs) Regarding the blue and tattooed commentary, it's a bit hard to prove or disprove. Testing of bog bodies has indicated tattooing was done, but whether it was widespread is uncertain. Looking at the classical blue description, some have stated that Wode's ability to fight off fungal infections may have led to it being used by those in the boglands, and the blue coloration was but a byproduct of their treatment. Um, Interestingly, some of the most in-depth Roman descriptions do not actually refer to the blue coloration at all. For example, Herodian stated the barbarian Scots were tattooed naked, wading through bogs with iron jewellery, but didn't make reference to a blue dye at all. And Severus, another one of the leading Roman scholars at the time, mentioned similar things. The source of the blue dyed description is believed to be from Julius Caesar, um, who never actually ventured any further than the southeast of England. So he may have seen those from Cornwall and decided they were from Scotland, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Looking back to jewellery again, Herodian stated that the Picts valued iron jewellery above all other metals. However, the status jewellery being found is largely silver. Um, This, combined with his views of all the Picts as barbarians, 
and naked people wandering through swamps um, makes it more apparent that these contemporary accounts are actually obscured Roman views um, created through a kind of prejudice against the native population. Turning to the final widespread myth about the Picts, that they were barbarians, looking at the silver bowls and ornate jewellery, you can quickly come to realise that this is not the work of so-called barbarians, but rather that of a sophisticated society. Pictish jewellery and art share many of the same qualities as Celtic, and it was observed by Professor J.O. Westwood when looking at the Book of Armagh, a famous Celtic text, text that it that in just one quarter of an inch of one of the illustrations there, there was 158 interlacements of a slender ribbon pattern used in white with the black background. Um, the complexity of the art of these early Scots is testament in itself to the refinement of the civilization. Interestingly, according to George Bain, an expert in Celtic art, such complexities are not as difficult to plan and execute as one may think, as the work was executed using specific grids and stages, which meant a complex pattern could be adapted to unusual shapes with relative ease, for example, on the Pictish bowls I referred to earlier. Um, and I think this uh, level of, of planning ahead shows a lot more kind of sophistication in the site itself rather than people who are just very talented creatives. Um, the creation of these works was referred to by Bain as being like a knitted pattern. One could easily tell if a stitch was dropped. So the people were, were such experts in these things that they, they were going through all the procedures of doing it, which is why when you look at um, some kind of obscure shaped rocks with that are filled to the brim with all the different patterns and things, there's no bit that seems like they've just run over the edge or they've ran out of space or their canvas has run over because every way they lay out the grids means that the pattern fits within it. Uh, the method of art making displays some similar similarities actually to ancient Egyptian art. Um, they used similar kind of plans and they depicted more things in the kind of 2D, they didn't do the kind of uh, perspective user things. Uh, and a lot of people thought that was intentional as well. Um, and that connection is why I found it particularly interesting that Cambridge University article proposed the idea that the images and symbols in Pictish art may in fact act like hieroglyphs, or certainly the early hieroglyphs of the Roman, uh, of the Egyptians, maybe not as consistent as they became later on, but these images that depicted like actual written language. Um, and accordingly, these uh, Pictish symbols and drawings that we maybe view as more uh, kind of visual depictions of what's happened could be an early written record that we haven't yet cracked. Uh, all of these factors combined with clearly hierarchical elements within their society illustrated through the very large silver chains that were worn by the leaders. I think I looked earlier and those, one of them was about a kilogram and a half of silver in the chain. So it was insanely think, big things to show the statement of the leaders. And then some of the more smaller refined things clearly worn by higher up members of the communities. Um, with the same principles going for clothing and horses and horses being very important to the pits. Um, this all illustrates a complex society definitely going beyond the barbaric myths. It's so fascinating to me that, um, you know, we haven't cracked the Pictish symbols and that there could be an entire kind of language, pictorial language in there. I'm like, what, did, what were they trying to tell us? Well, in that article that I read when that one came up, because I'd been thinking at the start of it when I was just looking at their the art in general, the way it was depicted on bowls and all that kind of things, or even your picture stones, that 
it did show a lot of similar qualities to Egyptian art, and I'd studied some, I did like a, an open university mini course in Egyptian art last summer, um, and looked at how they trained up new people and they used the kind of grid styles and there was the uniformity in the way they did separate elements and they all meant something so that it read out as a story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it was interesting that the Cambridge University had written that they thought it is quite likely that this is also another type of language, but we don't have, say, the Rosetta Stone that we had for cracking hieroglyphs. And we don't have the large kind of organ scripts that we're able to translate across from the Irish. So it was... Mm-hmm. they just haven't been able to find a, a consistent enough database to be able to figure out what it is because there's things like the Pictish Beast and things like that that yeah. are so commonly shown in, on loads of different pictures and no idea what they actually mean and they're not depictions of actual animals that we can see anyway there's been speculations but they not they must depict something that was important within society or must translate across to something in actual language so. we love um, stories like that because a while back I think 2018 they came out with this discovery that the kipu knots in, um, I think it was Mayan kipu knots, uh, were, they were just considered to be decoration or like a counting system for a really long time. But then they realized it's a form of writing. It's just not one that we ever recognized because we were coming at it from a Western bias of writing needs to be a written script with an alphabet, with something we can recognize. Um, and they just found this entire you know, we've got a wealth of information that we were completely passing over that documenting the history of Mayan civilization that we had no idea about. I think they're still working on it. I've not completely caught up with the story, but I'm sure, you know, if we can find something like this, the Pictish stones, there has to be a secret in there somewhere. It'd be so amazing if we could find out There's so much history we just don't know about. I find it quite interesting though that on these ones for so long, even in Egypt and thing, they saw them as pictures rather than as a language because that's not what we're used to. Whereas anything that looked like it could be a language, people would put all their endeavours into cracking it. Like, mm-hmm. um, if it was looked like a rune or looked like any of them kind of symbols, people were like, oh, it's definitely a language. There was, I think it was in, it was one of the Scandinavian countries or it could have been Iceland. Uh, there was these, like, looked like runes in a rock. And it's been, there'd been disputes on it for hundreds of years, what these meant. One academic has gone, went as far as to write a whole tomb on this epic battle um, that this this little section of runes depicted. And it was revealed a few years ago that it was actually just a natural formation in the rock. It didn't mean anything. <laughs> so people will put so much, people will put so much information into things that could be language because it looks like what we think it is, rather than seeing all these tons of amazing stones and thinking maybe there's some sort mm-hmm. of thing going there. Ooh, or the carving they found in a longhouse in Norway and it's this little section of runes and they sunk so many resources into being like, what is this? Is this have someone like signed their work? What is it? And it was like graffiti at the end of the day. So someone had carved their name into the building, which I find just so funny. And when you go to like Pompeii or other Roman um, ruins. People are carving their names in it. They're carving in, you know, pictures of phalluses. <laughs> Humans don't change. <laughs> On the jewellery side, though, I wonder if any of the detailings of the jewellery also potentially depicted stories or things. I definitely think they would have done because if you look at, especially like the bowls and things, they look, they have some of the same decorations that your kind of picture stones would do. So they have a lot of the kind of zoomorphic elements 
and some of your kind of what we associate as Celtic notes and things, but were also kind of common in the Pictish culture as well. So there was a lot of detail involved, and as well, some of the big silver chains that I mentioned, um, the clasp on them, they had normally quite big, wide, central clasp, um, and that normally had some sort of engraving around it depicting um, either just Celtic knot style things, or would have zoomorphic elements in it as well, which was just quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, the piece of art that I wanted to look at today is a piece of Pictish stone art called Venora Stone. Um, the stone itself is an eight foot tall Pictish symbol stone that is probably from the 9th or 10th century AD and it can be found in the Sculptured Stone Museum in Meagle alongside 26 other Pictish stones, um, which at one point stood in the area. And this is the largest collection of Pictish stones in Scotland. It's I've never actually been to the museum itself. It seems like it's quite a kind of it's got quite chaotic opening times i think um it must be run by like a couple of people in the village because it's in the old school um but if you can somehow align your visit to meagle with when it's open um i would highly recommend going in because it sounds amazing and i'd love to see the stone in person um but the stone depicts what looks like a figure in the middle surrounded by four beasts with three horsemen above that and then what looks like another horseman um, or centaur-like creature, a branch and maybe a plow and a cow below it. It's kind of hard to say, but the pictures will be on social media so you can have a look yourself and try and work out what's on there. Um, the stone's considered a class three picture stone, which basically means that it's a later carving, there's a cross involved, and we're well into Christian iconography and beliefs, so there's no picture symbols on this stone. Um, the tag on the stone in the museum says that it depicts a scene from Daniel in the Lion's Den, but local folklore has a very different and very compelling theory, which would attribute the figures to the story of Guinevere and King Arthur. The name Venora is believed to be a derivation of the name Guinevere, both names meaning fair or white, and the Venora stone itself used to be placed on an earthwork or barrow in the Meagle churchyard called Venora's Mound which is marked today by a plaque that claims the spot is the burial place of Queen Guinevere or Venora. And I suppose it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think that someone might be buried with a grave marker depicting the story of Daniel in the Lion's Den, which obviously symbolises virtue or faithfulness either you know, to a family or a person or your faith. Um, but given the folklore surrounding this stone, associate, associating it to faithfulness is really ironic and you're about to find out why. So the story goes like this. Um, it's the 6th century and Scotland as we know it doesn't yet exist but it's broken up into a number of smaller kingdoms. So we've got the Picts in the northeast, like we were just talking about, um, the Dalriata in the northwest, um, which is closely tied to Ireland. That's where we get the name Scots from. Um, it was actually brought over from Ireland. Um, and then Strathclyde in the southwest. Um, Arthur is the king of Strathclyde and he decides to go on pilgrimage to Rome, leaving his kingdom under the watch of his nephew and regent Mordred. Alarm bells start ringing here because we have Mordred involved. Um, unfortunately, Mordred was a Pict, so he sees his uncle's absence as an opportunity to take the throne and Arthur's wife Venora um, for himself. And we'll just step gracefully around the fact that Venora was also Mordred's aunt, aunt um, but, you know, it wouldn't be an Arthurian tale without a little bit of incest. 
Different versions give Venora different amounts of agency. Sometimes she's captured against her will and sometimes Mordred seduces her, but either way they both end up ruling together and in both cases her fate is exactly the same. Um, so when Arthur comes back from his pilgrimage, he rallies his people and fights to take his kingdom back. Um, Mordred flees to Barry Hill, which is a place in Meagle, um, with Venora, where she's imprisoned. Um, but even after Mordred is eventually killed and Venora is reunited with Arthur, Arthur's not happy with her. So she's sentenced to death by being torn apart by wild dogs, which is the scene that we see depicted on the stone. Um, a fun little fact that I found while researching this is that apparently um, local folklore states that if a young woman happens to walk over Venora's mound in Meagle Churchyard, she'll become infertile. In the original story that I knew, and I can't remember where exactly I heard it, but it was the one that I was aware of. Um, it was this one where Mordred steals Venora away and then she's later reunited with Arthur, who executes her himself. But I've seen a couple of versions in my research that actually have Arthur and Mordred meet at Camlin, either in Carlisle or Aelith, where, as per the Arthurian tradition, they both die. Um, it seems like perhaps the versions where Arthur and Venora are reunited came first, and then this was embellished with the Camlin interpretation when that became popular with writers like Mallory. Um, Arthur is definitely more brutal and morally grey in the early Arthurian tales, and we can certainly see that here. We spoke about the Dundee Dragon a few episodes ago and mentioned how place names mentioned in the folklore had a lasting impression on Dundee's local area and the same kind of applies to Meal and Venora. Um, obviously there's the mention of Barry Hill within the story which is a hill that can be visited to this day and climbed. Um, it was a Pictish hill settlement and up there was said to be a 6th century grinding stone called Venora's Girdle. Um, there's also an area called Arthur Stone nearby which supposedly had a huge standing stone which was like 12 feet tall um, bearing Arthur's name on it but very sadly megalithic.co.uk informs me that the stone was removed and broken up for building purposes in 1792 which is tragic um, the thing that I love about the Arthurian, Arthurian legends is that they're so fluid there's no one canon or representation of any character or event the tales started in what was local Celtic mythology um, which was a bit grittier um, only to be picked up by kind of pseudo-historians and then the French romances that shifted to a narrative that focused on chivalry and courtly love and then that continued to evolve until we get to things like Berman's Excalibur and BBC's Merlin which are more focused on mystical magical fantasy elements um, even into Monty Python's Holy Grail and none of them are more right or more accurate than any of the others because there is no canon um, really the Arthurian legends are just extensive fan fiction that sprouted from local folklore and as someone who has loved the Arthurian legends for a long time now I always struggled to place my own heritage and my own culture within that tradition because I always associated it mostly with Wales in the southwest of England and France um, you know there's not any hugely well-known Scottish tradition so when I discovered this story and also King Arthur's ties to other locations in Scotland, it was really exciting to think that there are pieces of the legend just half an hour up the road from where I live. Um, I could really go on and on and on and on about King Arthur um, and Scotland, but I'm just going to stop there and hold on to some of that for another time. But I hope that was interesting. And that's me. You know, actually, I was under... I This is new information for me, so that's really exciting. I had no idea. Like, I have a very generalized view of the tale of Arthur in the Knights of the Round Table. I think that most kids have growing up, you know, you'll see it in collections of fairy stories and the sword in the stone 
the Disney um, production, things like that. And it's always, it's an English tale to me. So seeing it have roots like that in Scotland is really, really cool. I felt bad for that standing stone that got broken up. I know. Although I was quite, uh, I was thinking like the other day there we went to, because we were near Meagle and we went to see another standing stone. Is it Macbeth stone? Macbeth stone. And it was huge and it was directly next to like a gatekeeper's lodge and I was like, it's remarkable they didn't break that up to build the lodge in the first place. Because it would have been such handy and accessible building material. Unless there was an entire stone circle previously, maybe they did. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I was just going to say, there's debates now about, uh, in museums, not to branch out too much, about um, kind of protecting too much. Because at the end of the day, we're supposed to build over things that we've already built upon. And the landscape is supposed to change and some things have to be torn down. And there's the argument that we're almost limiting creation now not only that but we're protecting things like trying to find some rationale to save something that doesn't necessarily have to be saved since we have so much digital media now where we can be like okay we can take a picture of this item or this landscape and save it does that mean that we have to preserve the landscape itself i'm not necessarily saying that i'm uh, agreeing but i can see why things like that like taking the bits of stone to build is that necessarily like an evil bad thing to do yeah it's uh, i think that's why there's always so much reflection on like the listed buildings what which ones are actually valid for listening and reviewing what is allowed within the development of different listed buildings because there's always kind of variations from the planning authorities of what they're going to allow now and a part of that is taking into account that things do need to be expanded like especially within universities and things, a lot of them will have very, very old central buildings and they'll all be listed. But universities are getting bigger and bigger and they will need more space. Which is why if you go to a lot of the older campuses, you'll see very new parts of buildings attached to very old one because one of the things they've done now, uh, a lot of the planning authorities have decided is that you they'll allow for this extra development but as long as it doesn't look like they're trying to like change what was the history of the building before, mm-hmm. so it's clearly a new addition, it's a new chapter in it, and it's separate from mm-hmm. what it was before, yeah. which I think is quite an interesting way of doing it, because you're satisfying retaining the cultural element of what it was before, but allowing for progress. Yeah. I was quite fascinated by the concept of folklore and art because these early depictions have helped pave the way to modern day representations of folklore creatures and especially so in paintings because these were arguably the first visual representation that could be shared amongst large audiences of people rather than just sitting in the imagination of authors who wrote on the topic. Uh, One particular painter who was famous for his love of Scottish folklore and Celtic legends was Sir Joseph Noel Payton who was born on the 13th of December 1821 and died on the 26th of December 1901. Um, For anyone listening who attended or is currently attending the University of Edinburgh, you may be quite interested to know that Joseph Noel Payton lived very close to the university campus for the majority of his life. And the very trusty source that is Wikipedia um, tells me he actually lived at number 37 Drummond Place in the the 1860s um, before moving to number 33 George Square. 
both of these streets and the buildings he lived in are places you can walk by today, which is really cool, um, as you don't always get a sense of how old some of the buildings around Edinburgh truly are. Um, a lot of the upkeep has helped them look exactly the same today as they would have, certainly in this case, over 160 years ago. Uh, and I do think that's really, really fascinating. Um, what's even cooler is you can view the piece of art I'm going to talk about today in the National Gallery of Scotland in Edinburgh. The painting is called The Quarrel of Oberon and Titania and depicts the fairy king Oberon and the queen Titania in a darkened forest at nightfall, surrounded by all sorts of fairies and creatures of all different sizes, um, some very small and fragile and quite innocent looking, um, all the way up to very monstrous and grotesque creatures that appear quite disfigured and frightening, um, but the two types are sort of seen to intermingle uh, in the painting and it creates quite a cool contrast. Um, You'll be able to see the painting itself on the Folklore Scotland social media pages and I do strongly recommend that you have a close look at it and see what else you can find. It's one of those paintings that the longer you look at it, the more you see. It's also an oil painting, so there are lots of colours and textures and a lot of depth um, that you'll be able to spot when you look at it. Some of the creatures are very well cloaked at a first glance and you think they're just part of the scenery but it's only when you focus in on those details that you can start to make out their features and see their faces. If the names of the king and queen sound quite familiar, it's because this painting is an interpretation of a scene from Shakespeare's play A Midsummer Night's Dream. It shows Oberon and Titania, as well as a changeling who is hiding behind Titania. And if you're a regular listener, you may remember a changeling episode from a few weeks back. Changelings are fairies and shapeshifters that can replace people, um, usually babies, uh, and take over their lives after kidnapping them. Um, the good thing is you can usually spot uh, or tell if somebody's been replaced by a changeling because changelings do not age. So even if you're not familiar with changelings or A Midsummer Night's Dream, you can still enjoy the painting as its own piece. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of content to digest when you look at it. Um, there are very beautiful and angelic creatures in the painting, um, some of whom actually make up the halo around Titania's head. Um, but there are also some other creatures um, that are hiding in amongst these groups and they're the kind of more disfigured creatures that we talked about, um, some quite frightening looking. Um, and there are also a lot of bugs and flowers. Um, and I think these show the same kind of aesthetic contrast in the scene. Even the trees in the forest are some are quite twisted looking um, and quite tortured, which also again is very similar to some of the creatures or the expressions that you can see on their faces. However, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, if you've seen the painting, you'll notice probably straight away that a lot of the fairies are fully or partially nude, um, though only the upper half of their bodies is fully visible to the onlooker. Um, most of them look like they're enjoying each other's company. They're playing in the pools um, and the lily ponds or they're floating around quite freely. And most of the fairies do have wings so they can fly. Um, and there's a few fairies that are kissing. There's a lot of couples. Um, so there is a certain air of romance and intrigue that makes the painting rather provocative. Um, the painting itself was made in 1849 and was exhibited for the first time in Edinburgh in 1850, so a year later. Um, it's said to have caught the eye of Lewis Carroll, who was the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and he counted a total of 165 fairies in the painting. So I definitely encourage you to take a look and see how many you can find. I was going to ask if the guy up in the top right with the horns and the pan pipes, could that be Pan? Um, 
the God of the Wild dude. Right. Oh, or or maybe just a satyr. Yeah. No, I bet it is Pan though. They loved they he's... loved Pan. Shakespeare was a massive fan of Pan. He's a rock, isn't he? He's. he's oh, yeah. is he a sculpture? I think he's a sculpture. Yeah. No, he's no a way. But if like the more you look at it, the more things you find. I love paintings like that. You it's can find amazing. something new every time you look at it. I love the bit behind the fairy queen. Um, there's a bunch of other fairies that kind of create a halo around her head. There's so <laughs> much. I wonder how long that took him to paint. Because there's just so many figures in it. And also, uh, yeah. what what size is it? Is it a, like a really huge piece? It is. Well, it's um, 99. So roughly a metre by a metre and a half. So many little characters. You know for too. sure that one of this guy's friends is in the picture somewhere. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And it's one of the really ugly characters. <laughs> this is you. I think it's really, like, kind of just gent, like, indicative of the Fae. Like, it really captures the the humanness, but there's also slightly offness about them that's often yeah. described in folktales. Like, there's just something a bit weird. Alright, so the piece of art I chose for today is slightly less specific than Rebecca's example, but no less beautiful. The Riders of the She by John Duncan was painted in 1911 as part of the wider Scottish art movement known as the Celtic Revival. So before I go into a more detailed description of the painting, I wanted to share some information on the art movement itself. So the movement was really led by Patrick Geddes, a sociologist, biologist and town planner from Aberdeen. He rallied other creators around him to recover Scotland's mythological past by reinventing it through art. This wasn't just paintings and illustrations. They used bookbinding, murals, jewellery, all areas were included. The Celtic revivalists rebelled against the modernising world and a unifying European culture, carving out a distinct Scottish identity. I think this quote from Geddes encapsulates the idea perfectly. Traditions must be recovered, new minstrels must again rise, in sympathy with their own people. One of these minstrels was John Duncan, from our very own Dundee. John Duncan really joined the Celtic Revival in 1892, when he moved to Edinburgh to paint the stunning murals in the Ramsey Gardens Hall of Residence. Duncan was fascinated with culture, culture throughout his life. More specifically, the occult sides of history warning small children of creatures like the Kelpies and the Kaliach. While painting the Riders of the She, he swore that he could hear fairy music playing. He also told his friends that he could teach them how to find the She, often looking at them, uh, watching him paint in the shift of the shadow just outside the realm of his vision. Very creepy, it makes me want to try it. He really captures his admiration for the good people in his painting. Using tempera style, which is pigment added to egg yolk and helps the painting last for a really, really long time, four she riders dominate the scene, processing from right to left as a young maiden looks on in awe. The muted colours of the background serve to emphasise their colourful splendour in reds and whites, while Duncan masterfully paints the drapery of their clothes. The fine detail of the painting is even more interesting. Each rider holds a mystical object, 
From left to right, a serene blonde elf grasps the tree of life in one hand, followed by the only figure looking out at the viewer, tenderly carrying a grail cup representative of love. This is the very same grail that you can find in the Arthurian legends, so that's a fun connection with Rebecca's story. Two riders closely follow the first, one holding a sword and shield, strength and power, the other a clear crystal stone, representing hope for the future. An even closer examination reveals the mask on one of the horses closely resembles that of the Iron Age pony cap you can find in the National Museum of Scotland. Meanwhile, the shield that's held by the third rider shares the same pattern of the Battersea shield. By using real historical detail to inform his work, Duncan grounds the imaginary in reality. I think it's also fair to say that such additions add a certain sadness to the piece, a knowledge that the days of magic are over and the only remains safely rest behind glass. Moving on to the folklore aspect. The Shi were fairies, but not like the changelings we discussed last week. Think instead of the elves from Lord of the Rings, ethereal and graceful, but not ones to be crossed. The good folk were more like the Greek gods. They could be worshipped and were not infallible towards mortal tricks, and once insulted could bring down several very inventive punishments. Hey, you have to find entertainment somewhere. The Shi were often found in fairy mounds, small hills in the landscape, which could either be natural or the earth and covering of ruined dwellings. You can find many tales detailing how adventures cross into the other world by entering one of these mounds. However, the Shi fearsomely protect their homes, often cursing those who dare to disturb them. In folklore, therefore, the Shi were to be both feared and respected. There's also a common theme of procession in the art we see of the fair folk, and which we see in the riders of the Shi. These processions serve to display their riches and beauty, as well as their awesome power. In Old Scots, fairy processions were also known as raids. Here, the connection to parade is very clear, but it also touches on the idea of a predatory foray into the mortal world. Raiding warriors come to ponder. The ideas around the Shi are still very pervasive. In my research, I was delighted to learn that Alan Lee, the designer of the Elven Realms of Rivendell and Lothlorien in the Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, was directly influenced by the John Duncan's paintings. And although I've just chosen one painting this week, I really recommend you look into his other works. Saint Bride in particular, which is currently hanging in the National Galleries in Edinburgh, is one of my favourite all-time paintings. And that is based on the legend of Saint Bridget, or Saint Bride as she's known, who was a saint in Scotland and in Ireland, and uh, many churches on the west coast are dedicated to her. Just connecting it to Tolkien again, I know when he was writing The Lord of the Rings, he was searching for an origin myth that he felt that Britain didn't have. Um, most countries have an origin myth about how their world came into being, and Britain didn't have one that had been really written. Um, so he wrote The Lord of the Rings as an excuse for doing that. Um, and I think these revivalists were really doing the same thing. So they were really locating Scottish history in the idea of a Celtic identity. Um, Duncan connected it really closely with the myths and legends from Ireland and kind of pitted his Scottish and Irish identity against England. I love um, how haunting the image is and how you were talking about when he was painting, he could hear fairy music and 
could feel them watching. It's just such an eerie vibe, and it gives me, like, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. He had a really strong belief in fairies, like, from birth until death, I believe. So he was really conscious about including all of that in his paintings. You can really see that that was the kind of Irish Celts that influenced a lot of the artistic style of it. Because if you look at things like the Book of Kells or the Book of Arctic, it's like very similar styling. You know what it is for me? Sorry, but it's the the four fingers of the hand being connected at all times. If in Irish and um, illuminated texts, they draw the hands like this, like a claw. If they have a finger disconnected, it will be the pinky and the rest will be all together. And I'm realizing as I'm saying this that it's perfect um, me gesturing for an auditory podcast. Just imagine me doing claws in the background. <laughs> it's you know, it's very uh, obvious in one of the front riders that's holding the, the tree branch because her hand doesn't actually look like it's holding it. It's not curved round. Yeah. It's sort of extended, but she's balancing it somehow. And I think until you pointed that out, I didn't realise that was the common thing between everybody who's holding anything. It mm. does seem to be that same kind of fingers together apart from the thumb for support. But obviously, there's nothing curved around. It's just straight. I do remember seeing that paint in McManus, though, because it just it glows somehow. Yeah. It's, and it, I think it's what you said about making the kind of duller tones of the background. It just makes all of the light and the gold... It's got a, a kind of an almost a, like a Gustav Klimt vibe in the brightness of yeah. it. The fairies that John Duncan paints are all supposed to be looked upon with awe. They're like the elves that we recognise now from high fantasy, like the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, if someone writes about an elf, that's, they're going to look fantastic. They're not going to look like the creepy little changelings. Yeah, especially in the painting that I talked about. Uh, they're definitely a lot more ethereal in this one another thing i'm interested in that i'd love to hear your thoughts on one uh when i was looking at it the procession is so common in art depicting fairies and creatures and when you think about it not just in scottish folklore uh think about the like yokai parades in japan where you have all these creatures that pass by um uh, scaring scaring people in the night the wild hunt um, and in Tamlin, the fairy procession in there. Well, we've got kind of similar comparisons. We've got the, like, the brown horse, the bat, the grey and the, the white. Yeah, that's true. Even like outside of the UK thing, I'm pretty sure when I was over in Spain, there was one about these kind of lines between certain points in some of the rural cities in the north and you did have the celtic influence in the north so it could be from the same traditions yeah and um, where like there was meant to be like the spirits and the fairy would travel along these routes yeah i didn't know whether you could connect it to um history and just showing power through having a massive retinue follow you which you can find in most cultures across the world The Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Your hosts this week were Rebecca, David, Mila and Roisin, and you can also check out all of the pieces we discussed in today's episode on our social media. 
Next week, you can look forward to another Campfire Tales episode followed by a trip into the Greenwood with Rosie and Kathy the week after that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.